You're about to watch a great interview on TYT interviews. If you wanna watch them live, members are the only ones who get to do that. TYTnetwork.com slash join, become a member, enjoy the interviews as they happen. All right, we've got a great interview for you guys today. It's George Halverson, and he is an interesting cat, as you're about to see. He's the former CEO of Kaiser Permanente, a giant healthcare group, obviously. And he is now the president and CEO of the Institute for Intergroup Understanding. He's written nine books, the last one is Three Key Years, and talking about the first three years of a kid's life and how important that is. That's a really interesting topic. He's also written Ending Racial, Ethnic, and Cultural Disparities in American Healthcare, and Healthcare Will Not Reform Itself. You have a funny line in one of your speeches about how you're now working on world peace because it's actually easier than healthcare reform, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so very interested in your thoughts on healthcare reform because obviously you spent a lifetime working on it. And and I should also say that George has won just about every award there is um, and has was chair of so many organizations that I can't literally can't list them all for you guys. But um, and then in 2015, you received the Impact Visionary Award from Ad Age. And I like this, you're in the Scandinavian Hall of Fame. <laughs> okay, exactly. that's fun, that's fun. Um, I, I received the Golden Turk Award once, so, I, but I haven't quite made the Turkish American Hall of Fame yet. So yes. I'm not quite where, where you are, yeah. George. Uh, and obviously I can go on and on, Num name number six on Modern Healthcare's annual 100 Most Influential People in Healthcare back in 2012. Okay, so then George, given this rich history, it's hard to know where to start. But healthcare is such a giant issue here, uh, and, and I think right now, especially with push for Medicare for all, I think let's start there. And then I want to talk to you about your work on uh, fighting racism, and and this you know developmental issue that you focus on that you've got amazing stats on. Okay, so yes. um, first of all, you ran Kaiser Permanente for a long time, uh, and Kaiser is a little different uh, than than the rest of the industry. I really yes, I don't know very, much about it. I'm, yeah. I'm very curious. How is it different? Everybody always tells me about it, but I've got the former CEO here, so. Well, let me get it from the horse's mouth. The rest of healthcare in this country is um, siloed. It is basically set up as separate uh, non-systems. Individual mm -hmm. doctors practice separately from other doctors. Hospitals are not connected to other hospitals. I mean, the, the country is really heavily siloed. And Kaiser Permanente functions as a team, functions as a vertically integrated team. So the doctors, the hospitals, the, the uh, labs, pharmacies, x-rays are all part of a totally integrated team of caregivers. So, so, let me, so let me try to understand that. So in the rest of the country, there's doctors and hospitals floating around and they sometimes work together, but they don't have to. It's like Kaiser, you've got them all lined up. So if a doctor works with Kaiser Permanente, he's gonna work with Kaiser Permanente hospitals yes. and other providers. So what's the advantage of that? Huge advantage of that. You get much better care. The, the patients end up with a higher quality of care, better care outcomes. Uh, better care for far better care for diabetics, forty uh, percent lower strokes than the rest of the country. Uh, half as many asthma attacks for kids, mm -hmm. because when you focus on preventing the asthma attack, the rest of healthcare makes its money by having an asthma attack, and they treat the crisis, and then the kid goes into the hospital. The hospital makes a lot of money on the crisis, and each piece suboptimizes and benefits from the crisis. Mm -hmm. Kaiser Permanente is the exact opposite. The members pay a fixed amount before 
all care. And inside Kaiser Permanente, the very best financial model is to prevent the asthma crisis. Mm -hmm. So Kaiser has half as many asthma crises. Kaiser Permanente has the lowest death rate from HIV. It has the lowest death rate from uh, stroke. Mm -hmm. um, and basically, because it's a vertically integrated care system where the caregivers are focused on the patient and focused on best practices and not focused on billing. And the rest of healthcare really is organized around opportunities to bill. And okay. So, so that's, and that's, that's a big difference. Yeah, that, that is a huge difference. So uh, let's talk broader now. So yeah. uh, what's your thoughts on universal healthcare? Uh, we're the only industrialized country in the world that doesn't cover every citizen. That's mm -hmm. ridiculous. We spend more money than any other country by a multiple of two, and we don't provide care to everyone. We have more than enough money in the system to do that. We just need to organize ourselves appropriately to do it. And we should be able to cover everyone and spend less money than we're spending now. So I believe we spend on average $4,500 more than the second closest country or, or, or their average of, of developed countries, some monstrously high number. Monstrously, exactly. That's right. So where does that $4,500 go? Well, it goes into waste inefficiency and very, very high incomes for, for, who? for caregivers. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you look at um, Canada, um, spends about 12% of its GDP on care. We spend 17%. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you took, but Canada sets the fee schedule at the government level. So they set every fee. Mm -hmm. If we took the Canadian system and delivered every piece of care we deliver today, every hospitalization, every test, every scan, every surgery, every single thing, but just priced it at Canadian levels, our cost of care would go from 17% down to 13%. So that's savings that are so high that it's hard to count, right? Hard to count. Yeah. If you want to, Canada also uses a single payer system, so it takes out the insurance cost, but the insurance cost will take you from 17 to 16. Mm -hmm. But using the Canadian fee schedule takes you down to 13. So wh why do we pay so much? Why, why uh, can't um, we negotiate Well, it, I mean, we, I thought we had a guy in office who uh, wrote an art of the deal. Yeah, we, we don't negotiate. <laughs> prices are not negotiated in, in health care very much at all. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're not negotiated in, this, in terms of a package of care. So we buy all the care by the piece. And when you buy care by the piece, then you end up with piecework care. You, and you actually end up with an incentive to deliver worse care. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example that um, in this country, roughly 10% of patients end up with a pressure ulcer in most hospitals. Mm -hmm. um, that's what percentage? About 10. Oh, wow. Okay, the good hospitals are about that's five. All, that's really high. Yeah, the good, the good hospitals are about five. Mm -hmm. Kaiser Permanente was at five a few years ago and decided to systematically improve that. So it took it from five to four to three to two to one. So Kaiser Permanente only has 1% of the patients that have pressure ulcers in the hospitals. And the other ones, other hospitals are still five to ten, much higher. But those hospitals make $40,000 on every pressure ulcer patient. So yeah. if, if you're going to take $40,000 per patient out for 5% of your patients, 
um, what's the incentive to get that right? Mm-hmm. Kaiser Permanente is prepaid, so KP has far safer hospitals than the rest of the world because the incentive is to be safe and, and not to have an infection. So how could the government fix that? Like if they wanted to fix that today, we, we know that it's, you know, that we're, they're incentivized to charge more because they're yeah. gonna make more. So how do, we, how do we end that incentive structure? Well, one of my books basically is called Do Not Let Healthcare Bankrupt America. And I explain in that book how the government can reprice the way it buys care buy care by the package, not by the piece, and get much better prices and much better outcomes than they do now. Mm-hmm. We could easily, the government could go there, but the government has to go there. The problem is, is there's a huge lobbying pressure from all of those care sites that are doing really well financially. And be, because if the computer industry was generating 17% of the GDP of the country, we would say that's a huge winner economically. Mm-hmm. Um, healthcare, we say it's not a winner, but functionally it is. There's some people are winning, some people are making yeah. a lot of money, and, they, and right. they've got all the incentive in the world to, to lobby to keep the system right. as it is. So who, who are the ones that uh, have the highest incentive? Is it and, the drug companies, is well, it the insurance and, companies, is it the hospitals? Drug companies in this country charge two, three, and four times more per prescription than they charge any place else in the world. So it's just highway robbery. Yeah. So we we for a Lipitor prescription in this country we might pay 140, and in France it would be 40. Yeah. In Britain it'd be 30. I mean, the, the, if you look at the drug prices in the rest of the world, it, it is a fraction of the U.S. So right now, the, we 14 percent of our healthcare dollar goes to drugs. If we paid European prices, that 14 percent would drop to seven. Right? Well, I mean, so, look yeah, at, so that would save the country billions upon billions of dollars. It would save citizens billions of dollars, yeah. but it would cost the drug companies those same billions of dollars. Right, so, it's a zero-sum game. And, and so, if well, it's not a zero-sum game. If you stop paying that to the drug companies, the drug companies' profits would go down. Mm-hmm. And the consequence of that, we don't know. Mm-hmm. They, not if it would go out of business. Mm-hmm. They would all continue to function. Their shareholders would have a, a brief period of time when their stock prices changed. But at the end of that brief period of time, we would have a 7% savings in the cost of care for America. Yeah. What else can you do to get 7% savings? It's gigantic. Yeah. So, um, so, but if you had universal health care, would that put the insurance companies out of business? No. Or- Every other country, one of the one of the myths. It's mm-hmm. fascinating. One of the myths is that um, Europe uses single payer systems. Mm-hmm. They don't. Only Canada uses a single payer system. The rest of Europe uses health plans. They use competing health plans. So if you're in Switzerland or if you're in the Netherlands, there's not one single person in that country that has government coverage. Hmm. They all belong to health plans. They all join exchanges. I, I was the chair of the International Federation of Health Plans for 10 years. I chaired the group that represented all those countries. I know all those health plans. They exist. They're always amused that the U.S. seems to think they don't exist. <laughs> but the, that is the model. Germany actually invented health plans. Bismarck, when he was trying to unify Germany, wanted to have health coverage for everyone. Didn't want the government to do it. Mm-hmm. So he invented sickness funds and they compete with each other. So Germany is full of 
competing health plans like Aetna, WellPoint, Cigna, Blue Cross. Mm -hmm. Germany's full of sickness funds. So how do they keep the uh, the cost down? And what does it mean to like? How do they implement universal coverage? Because if you're an insurance company, it's normal. Well, they require everyone to buy coverage. Okay. So every so single, that's like a mandate. You must. It's a mandate. It's a total, absolute, clear mandate. If you if you're a Swiss citizen, and you move from one town, one address to another. One of the first things you have to fill in on your moving form is which health plan you've picked for the new site because mm -hmm. they take that money out of your paycheck. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are really fanatical. They have a mandate in all those countries. Mm -hmm. So they don't have universal, they don't have national uh, insurance. They have national mandate. Right. And, and by the way, we, we have a mandate here too. It's just on car insurance. Uh, if you yeah. own a car, you must have car insurance. Exactly, that's a mandate. That's exactly, all it is. same. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and they have a mandate so that they don't die. Yeah, <laughs> so that's a pretty that's an understandable and, mandate, and, right? And they get better prices because everyone's an insurance fool, so the uh -huh. insurance isn't just the outliers. And they also, in every country, set maximum costs, maximum prices for pieces of care. Mm -hmm. So they will say, okay, if you're going to get a, a CAT scan here. Uh, Germany, for example, says the CAT scan is going to be name it fifty bucks, five hundred bucks, whatever it is. Right, and that is what it is. So here in America, they would immediately go, "Whoa, that sounds like communism to me." How could the government set prices? What's right. your answer to that? The answer is CAT scans in this country. Mm -hmm. The prices on a CAT scan range from about fifty dollars to about five thousand. Mm -hmm. Same scan, same site, same care delivery. All of those prices are artificial. They're all made up. They're all market based on what a given payer will pay, and they have no relationship to the basic cost of providing the care. In Europe, they say the CAT scan is going to be worth 200 bucks, would be a typical. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And all of the care sites that have CAT scanners charge at 200 bucks. In the U.S., there's this vast range, but the U.S. sites could get by just fine with the European price. You know what, it's, it's, it's funny, it's almost ironically communist the way we do it. Uh, uh, pay, take as much as you need and pay as much as you have. Right, so if you got the five thousand bucks, we'll charge you the five thousand bucks. Right, <laughs> right. So uh, there's definitely significant irony in that. Um, well, well, coronary, yeah, artery, coronary bypass surgery uh -huh. in the U.S. over hundred thousand dollars per procedure. No place else in the world charges more than twenty thousand. Mm -hmm. Many countries charge ten thousand, and they have outcomes that are as good or better than ours for ten. Mm -hmm. So, so. How about the doctors? Uh, you know, they see the argument by the right wing is uh, we have the best doctors in the world because we can pay them more, etc. So, does the government set the wages for doctors in, in a country like Germany? Uh, and if not, how do how do you handle yeah, that cost? That Germany, um, France, uh, all of those countries have better, faster access to primary care than we do. Mm -hmm. So they all have an infrastructure primary care because they pay primary care doctors more relative to specialists. We pay specialists three and four times as much as we pay primary care. So we have a shortage of pediatricians. We have a shortage of family practitioners. And the European countries pay about the same for those specialties. So they have enough surgeons and they have more, uh, many more primary care doctors. So you start out with better outcomes. You also end up with a faster access to some kinds of specialty care. And um, 
the, the European health outcomes are as good or better than ours. And we're actually about 30th in the country on life expectancy. In the world, I mean, not in the mm -hmm. country. We're about 30th yeah. in the world. So many, many countries are ahead of us, the system that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Because if you have immediate access to care, in, in Switzerland, you know, 60, 70% of the people have same-day access to primary care. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., 20, 30%. Mm -hmm. yeah, so look, there's the, that's a myth that those countries ration. They don't. Yeah. So it's 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 funny they say that. It just randomly today I was trying to get a doctor's appointment. Okay, mm -hmm. not having anything to do with this interview, obviously. And they gave me one two months from now. If you were Kaiser Permanente member, you would have it tomorrow. <laughs> okay. Kaiser Permanente yeah. immediate appointments. You get you get in immediately, and you get in with a caregiver who is. I'm going to have your complete medical record, all the information about you electronically, and we'll know what you need. And follow-up visit, at least half the time, can be done electronically because it's more convenient for you to do it electronically. Yeah, so look, we're not doing an ad for Kaiser here. I don't know if we you could, still, though. <laughs> I don't know if you still got stock in it. I, I no, got no uh, horse in that race. No. But, uh, but, it, but I get the logic of it because if you're focused on keeping costs low, you want primary care right away. You don't want the guy, that guy to wait around for two months. Exactly. Because the quicker you do prevention, the less costs you're gonna have later. Same thing in the in the European model, which yep. is that if you pay your primary care physicians more, you're gonna have more preventative care and less costs down the road. Whereas we emphasize paying the costs down the road, which are far, far higher, right? right? And, and so we shouldn't be surprised that so our we, bills are high. Yeah, so we have huge numbers of hospital infections. Mm -hmm. Hospital infection rate, the number one cause of death in American hospitals is sepsis. Mm -hmm. It actually kills more people than strokes or heart attacks or any other condition. Sepsis is the number one cause of death. And we can prevent sepsis. So again, Kaiser Permanente Hospitals, some other systems, uh, the Catholic hospitals in California have done a really good job on sepsis. And so the sepsis death rate is much lower. But the rest of the country, the number one, and sepsis is extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. Right. So so I understand all that. Um, and, and so when they say, by the way, oh, rationing, you got to wait. We got to wait in our system. I got to wait two months before I can do a checkup. Well, it's but, unbelievable. No, no, we, our system has very long waits compared to Europe. You would not have that wait if you were Swiss. Mm -hmm. you yeah. would, if you're Dutch, you would not have that, that weight. Yeah. Great Britain has weights. Great Britain does a really good job on primary care. Mm -hmm. So every citizen has a primary care doctor or they, and the doctors work with them. But Britain does actually ration specialty care. Mm -hmm. So they have a shortage of specialists and subspecialists in some areas of the country. Yeah, so yeah. so that's, where you get the, that's where you get the urban myth that Europe makes its money by rationing, or it saves its healthcare expenses by rationing. But you, Britain's an outlier. Yeah. No, I, that's one of the things that drives me crazy, not just about healthcare, but all the issues is why don't we look at what works throughout the world? Exactly. <laughs> why is exactly. That, why is that so difficult? Yeah. Right? No. And so, uh, so it sounds like the British system has some problems, so let's not use the British system. Let's use the system that gives you the best results for the least amount of money. Not that complicated. Switzerland. <laughs> yeah, Switzerland, you know. And, and you know what Switzerland uses? What's that? Obamacare. <laughs> okay, it's got to be they a have, little bit more nuanced well, than that. But uh -huh. exchanges. They, uh -huh. they, everyone gets to pick from an exchange, mm -hmm. and you have a subsidized premium, and people actually get their care from that system, and, and they get data from the system. It is a functional clone 
of the exchange part of Obamacare. Hmm, interesting. So, and you support you supported universal health care coverage before Obama was in office, and then you supported oh, the Affordable Care Act uh, yeah. uh, when when Obama pushed that through. So, uh, one more thing on that, I, I would think. I would have pushed more strongly for the European model, where it was a universal mandate. Mm -hmm. I would have, if we could get every American covered, we could do it for a lot less money. And what we've got is too many people who, even with Obamacare, did not take coverage. Yeah, and and so um, how about Medicare for all? Um, as a Medicare for all, the reason that Medicare, two things, the reason that Medicare costs a lot less than the rest of care is fees. They mm -hmm. actually use the European model for Medicare. The government sets the fees. Right. So that model would actually um, work well for. Uh, some people and Medicare right now, most of the Medicare people join Medicare Advantage plans. And if they join a Medicare Advantage plan, what you get is a health plan mm -hmm. who has agreed to, for a fixed amount of money every month to provide full coverage and care to you. Mm -hmm. Those plans do a really good job of managing uh, care for diabetics. So they have fewer diabetic complications, they have fewer strokes. The Medicare Advantage plans. Um, are doing well, and I think the government is going to be promoting Medicare Advantage plans as part of the Medicare agenda. Yeah, so you, look, you, Medicare gives you a certain uh, minimum amount of coverage. You can do Medicare Advantage, and by the way, it doesn't prevent anybody from offering more insurance on top, more private insurance. Right, on you top. can buy supplemental coverage on top of yeah. your standard Medicare. Right. So right. If, if we were to to do, you know, you can call it the Sanders plan, but it's been around for a while and a lot of other people support it. But say, hey, look, if Medicare works for people above the age of 65, why not age of 60 or 55? Hey, wait, why not just Medicare for all? Is that a, is well, that a workable plan? Is there if, something wrong with it? I, I don't if, know, I genuinely if you, ask. If you, Medicare all by itself has really poor care quality. Mm -hmm. There's no tracking, there's no care improvement, the, the care for um, diabetics in, inside Medicare is typically extremely inconsistent. It, the caregivers have no mechanism or incentive to coordinate with each other. And so you, you often get some really inadequate care in the Medicare model mm -hmm. because it's not structured to provide team care. The part of Medicare that does provide team care, you end up with much better care. Mm -hmm. And better outcomes. So, but so that's not a structural problem in the concept of Medicare well, that's for my, all. That's my point. It, it, you, you could just fix that. You right? can fix that exactly. Right, you can right. fix that. You could actually fix that part of Medicare. And if you actually made, and again, it, it would look then a lot like the Swiss model, mm -hmm. because Medicare would then be everyone would have it, and you could then choose your health plan in the Medicare Advantage plan. And there is a real advantage of having competing health plans because they figure out how to improve your service, how to improve your health status. They, they figure out how to make you um, active and work on weight issues. Mm -hmm. and, and so it would, it's, it's good to have a health plan in the equation rather than just siloed independent doctors that aren't connected to anything. Yeah. And, but so that, so if you, if you use a Medicare model that also Takes advantage of best practices in team care. Yeah, yeah. Then great. Okay. All right. Good deal. <laughs> so, is it, out of curiosity, if you had something like Medicare for all, 
How much of an issue would that be for a company like Kaiser Permanente? Are there shareholders now going, George, what are you doing? What are you doing? Well, <laughs> KP um, is about a $60 billion company. Mm -hmm. Okay, it is totally prepaid. So mm -hmm. it's 95% prepaid. There, there's some mm -hmm. cash coming in that's independent payment, but it, it's almost entirely prepaid. Um, in a Medicare for all environment, if you have the kinds of choices I was talking about, KP would do wonderfully. KP has a million people now on a Medicare Advantage plan. Mm -hmm. They already take a prepayment from the government for Medicare members for over a million of them, and they do just fine. In fact, KP, um, Medicare rated 550 health plans in the country, mm -hmm. and they one to five stars, and 11 health plans in the country got five stars, top level. Eight of them were KP plans. Mm -hmm. I was gonna guess, at least one of them was KP. You're the eight out of 11. Eight out of 11, and one of the other was my old Minnesota plan. Uh -huh. So that model, vertically integrated plans do really well on quality service and outcomes. But the patients in that model have a choice. Mm -hmm. And you can take a look at how many stars your plan has and you can, and all the plans have a strong incentive to increase their performance against the star program. And the fee-for-service Medicare doesn't have that. Fee-for-service Medicare, you just go to a provider and they may or may not have any kind of care coordination of any kind. Okay, and, I like most, most I, don't. I have one more question about healthcare. I can't yeah. stop asking. Okay, and then we are going to go on to the the racism issue and the and the yes. developmental issue because they're Good. super interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, so what if you did? Um, you said, okay, everybody's got an option of going into Medicare now if they want to. So the government's not mandating that you all do Medicare, but we're giving you that option. So if you're 45 years old, if you want, you can just do Medicare. Is that a, is that possible? Does that make any sense? You mean sense? as another alternative option in the in the total market? Yeah. You know, I don't know where healthcare reform is going to end up, um, but you can design a model mm -hmm. where. Uh, People can voluntarily get to both Medicaid and Medicare mm -hmm. at a certain point, and, and Medicaid has some real advantages. Medicaid done well can be really good care, mm -hmm. and Medicare done in team care can be really good care. So, if individual consumers could choose those paths based on their income status and, and their proximity to the care teams, that model could work just fine. Because it would be systematic care, we'd be tracking the outcomes and you'd be monitoring the performance and, and you'd be giving consumers information that they need to make decisions. Right now, consumers have no information to use to make decisions about care. Yeah, you know, I dream of a democracy where we have these rational discussions. And I bet if you had 10 smart, rational guys, you'd come up with the right plan at the end of the day. But the problem is the lobbyists and they come in and, they, and they're not gonna allow you to do democracy. They're not gonna let you do a rational plan. Well, that was just a exactly. I was just at a meeting of of twenty um, caregiving organizations, multi-specialty group practices, the big national uh, clinics that that do that kind of work, talking about what they would perceive for a perfect future, mm -hmm. and what they would love to see would be a system where they could enroll people, they could get a fixed amount of money to do it, keep you like model, and then they could design their care delivery around the patient. And not around the billing, and right now, it, things like cutting the the infection rate costs so much money that a lot of them aren't doing it. But if the minute there's a financial reward, everyone will flip, and care will get better. 
Yeah. And then the hospitals would, maybe, I guess my point is, those big systems would love it. They would rather be there. They would rather, their leaders would rather have that model because they'd like to sit down with the flow of money and figure out the best thing to do for the patient than what they're doing now, which is figure out how can I get three more CT scans per you know, yeah, 10 yeah, patients. The incentive structure is insane. It's crazy. Okay, so let, now let's go over to, you, you talk about racism and discrimination, et cetera, in the context of healthcare. What is that? What are you referring to? Well, one, one of my books is Ending Ethnic Racial Disparity in Healthcare. And what I talk about are the facts that um, in this country, if you're African-American male and you go into a hospital with a heart attack, you're half as likely to get a painkiller. There's a whole series of, of things identified in the book where there are significant disparities and differences in care delivery based on race and ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And um, we need to take that out. Kaiser Permanente, we identified by uh, each patient because we have electronic medical records, so we have all the information about every patient all the time. And part of the information is race and ethnicity. Mm-hmm. So then we track care delivery. So in San Diego, I could tell you what the difference was between Hispanic population, African American population. Pick any of the other populations mm-hmm. relative to prostate cancer death rate, um, detection rate, the diagnosis rate. I mean, all of those types of things are available from KP. And I read about that in the book. And, and once we identified that there were significant disparities by group, and even in KP, where it's a vertically integrated system of the same doctors, we discovered that we had some significant differences. That the death rate for HIV was significantly different for for black patients than for white patients, for example. And so what we did was we re-engineered the care, focused the care, said, got the care to be really good for everybody, but then got rid of the differences and did some coaching and counseling and, and channeling. And so now for HIV, the death rate is the lowest in the country for all black and white and every other group. Um, you can do that in, a, in an organized system with right incentives. And if you don't have an organized system, you can't do any of that stuff. So look, of course, and George, I don't know your politics, but I, I mean, it, when you're having rational discussion, so I'm assuming uh, you're progressive, but I don't know. Anyway, so because the right wing will say, no, you're making it racial. Why are you bringing race into healthcare? Um, but the data shows across the country, right? That that right. And, and is it? And let me ask you: Is it on an issue by issue that they're uh, that African Americans, Latinos are getting worse care, um, or is it for all? All of the healthcare issues. You see what I'm saying? Are they getting worse care on HIV specifically, or is it across the board? Well, what what I say in my book is there tend to be differences in care delivery that have links to race and ethnicity, and um, you need to track those and and you need to change them where there are differences. And it's entirely possible once you identify them to make changes and improve care for everyone. And so the model, the goal needs to have complete data about all the patients and with the complete data, focus on where there are opportunities. Um, prostate cancer for Hispanic patients, for example, um, tends to have a very um, a very low number of people willing to have the exam. Mm, okay. So, um, so what did we do? We did some coaching, we did some teaching, we did some prompting and, and now the death rate for that cancer is as low 
in that population as it is in the other population. So that's interesting. You see, that's if I've got it right, that's not racism, but it is racial, right? There's a oh, racial absolutely. disparity. Well, it's not the doctor driving in that case; it's sometimes the patients that right. are driving. Right, and, and, and what I say in that book is is that there's a couple of bees involved. The bias is definitely part of the issue. Behavior is part of the issue, and biology is part of the issue. So some groups are far more susceptible to become diabetic. Far more so they have to do diabetes. So you have to recognize that and focus on that. Then you got behavioral issues. People, if you're overweight, if you're inactive, you're far more likely to have chronic conditions. And then you've got pure bias. And bias basically says that if two people both have Alzheimer's, you treat them differently. Mm-hmm. And we need to deal with all three. And as I identified in the book was that they are co-equal. So the, the, the biological issues, you are far, far, far more likely to, to end up with certain kinds of breast cancer if you're an African-American woman. Mm-hmm. Well, that has nothing to do with uh, bias. That's totally... But what you have to do is you have to know that data so you can help that particular population of women have the exams at an earlier age. So it seems like the answer is um, education. And I think that it is... Uh, relatively easy on two fronts, but not necessarily easy on the third front. So what I mean by that is, if you know that your biology predisposes you to one thing more, you might want to get that checked more. So if you are right. educated that, about that issue, you go, okay, hey, if I'm an African American woman, I really got to make sure that I check for this kind of breast cancer. So I'm going to go in early and I'm going to do that exam. Check, right. problem solved, as long as you have brought that education to all the different groups and all their different issues. Right. right? So uh, on, the, on the behavior issue, similar, hey, if you don't do the prostate cancer check, you're more likely to get prostate cancer, right? Right. And you're then that's likely, your call. You're more, right? you're more likely to die of it. You're not more likely to get it. You're more likely to die of it because it gets Because we caught it late. late. Yeah. Right, got it. But the bias issue, that's where it gets political. So if you right. said, okay, now I'm going to train all the doctors in the country that unwittingly, I'll say mostly unwittingly, that you might right. be treating patients a little differently and look at the data and the results that that's showing, it's having a really large out, outcome difference, right? Well, you're going to get a lot of pushback, right? Like, wait, are you calling me racist? You know what? Um, I don't think there's that much pushback. If it's data-based, if you mm-hmm. actually pull up the database and say this set of treatments varies by group mm-hmm. in these ways, and you show that's true based on data, then people, my experience has been people are then willing to change behavior based on the data. If you just say, I think you're biased and prejudiced, they're but, going to shut off, right? Yeah, and yeah, and, and don't support that with anything. Then people don't have any sense of oh, what can I do with that data? And you're insulting me, and you know, go away. But but if I sit down and say um, you're not, your Hispanic patients are not getting this test, mm-hmm. so you need to coach them more and encourage them more, and and we need to track how well your patients are getting that. We actually saw those lines change significantly in just a couple of years. Yeah, and luckily doctors are obviously highely educated by definition. And, and science-based. And doctors, science-based. Doctors like to be scientists. There, yeah. There's a, a sense of, of, and doctors all like to be number one. All the people got into medical school by being number one in high school, number one in college. I mean, they, they're used to being at the top of the, the performance level. Mm-hmm. And so they like that. So if you put out, I mean, Kaiser Permanente, and I, I talked about the um, the uh, infection rates in the hospitals. 
We actually got hospitals down the year I left, the year, a couple years ago. We had mm -hmm. seven hospitals that did not have one single pressure ulcer in a year. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the rest of the country is 5 to 10%. We did not have one single because everybody, once they got going down that path, got really competitive about it. Oh, right. And we're going to bring it down more we're than gonna, Yeah, hospitals. we're going to bring it down in the other ones. We're yeah. going to be the best. And, and, yeah. and a couple of, of nurses who had patients that got pressure ulcers, we actually had to provide counseling for because they felt so bad uh -huh. that they had let their team down and their, and their patient down. It yeah. wasn't their fault, but it, yeah. because some are just going to happen. Yeah, but um, that's good. Though. It changes the culture. Ironically, they get a, a stress ulcer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So from dreading, it could be. No, seriously. So I, I get that you're saying Kaiser's doing it. Is the rest of the country having this kind of education? Whether it's with the groups themselves or the doctors, you know, addressing it on those three points, or are we generally well, not having that conversation? All over the country, the, the Affordable Care Act created. ACOs, Accountable Care Organizations, and the goal of the Accountable Care Organization is to be a Kaiser clone. Mm -hmm. So that was built into the law, it was deliberate, it was intentional. And the ACOs are having inconsistent success. Some of them are doing well and providing better care, some of them are not doing as well and they, they're on a learning curve and they have to get better at it. But um, the ACO model is a really good idea and we need to get better at it and spread it. Because Accountable Care Organization basically is what it sounds. It's it's organized and it's accountable and it's delivering care. And the financial model rewards that. And so we need more of that. And then the other thing we need to do is we need to do a much better job with computer support for care. Mm -hmm. And we need all of the patient data centered on the patient. What we have now is all the data centered on the care site. So if you have allergies and you have cancer and you have asthma, that's three different databases for you and they don't even talk to each other. They don't connect with each other. Mm -hmm. And so what we need is we need the data, unless you're at Mayo or KP or a couple programs mm -hmm. like that, and then it connects. But what we need is we need that kind of data connection for all patients. So if you go into doctor for your asthma, they know you've got cancer. Yep. And, yeah, that's and just we need super to follow logical, it. obviously. Super, yeah. It's yeah. super logical, and, and it, but there is resistance. There has been some resistance to connecting the data. But we need to overcome that and do it because the benefits are massive. So now I'm back into healthcare politics. So uh, the Republicans uh, in the House passed this, their ACHA, uh, where they repealed Obamacare and, and have their proposal. Uh, what do you make of it? Well, they had promised so many times to um, repeal Obamacare, they had to pass something. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they, they literally. And, and so they had to get enough votes from all the constituencies. So they moved the components of that bill around mm -hmm. in various ways to generate votes. And it really wasn't, there was no one sitting back there saying, what's optimal care going to look like for the country or what's the best financing model? And so it, it was sort of ideological and political and, um, and not built around somebody who, who had a great vision for what optimal care should look like. So that, that, that is not a bill based on optimal care delivery. That's a bill based on how do we get, what is the number of votes? How, how do we get to 218 votes or whatever? Mm -hmm. okay. now, now that they got those, they, it, they passed it. Pressure's off them. Now they've thrown it over to the Senate. Now the Senate has to figure out something. And they've got a totally different set of pressures and a different set of realities. And, and the Senate's got some major challenges. And one of the major challenges is 
the one of the very best, most brilliant and wonderful things that that Obamacare did was expand Medicaid. Mm -hmm. We're the only country in the world that does not provide coverage to its low-income people, mm -hmm. and Medicaid expansion did that. That to me, if there's nothing else in the bill that had happened that's important, that's that's beautiful. Because there are so many poor people in America, millions and millions of poor people, who have a doctor. Whose kid gets sick and they can take him in. I mean, that's that's miraculous. It's a wonderful thing. So the expansion of Medicaid is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And they put incentives in. Some states uh, didn't accept the expansion of Medicaid mm -hmm. because states got to do it. But many states did. And many of the states that did have Republican governors and Republican senators. And those people love it, and the hospitals in those states love it, because it's paying for their uh, hospital care for other people who otherwise would have no funding at all. And so there's a lot of people that love it. So the Republican bill basically puts all that in jeopardy, the House bill. Yeah, they but cut $800 billion from Medicaid. They cut it from Medicaid, yeah, which is a criminal and horrible thing to do if you want to... Or asking what my leaning is on that, <laughs> criminal and horrible is is a leaning, and and so what we need to do though, and what's going to happen in the House or the Senate though, is they can't cut that uh, Medicaid in those states in the same way because those senators will not get reelected, because they will be hated by all the people who lose their coverage, mm -hmm. and so that makes it much 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 harder for the Senate to do that type of thing. So if the Senate does their bill and they send it back to the House and they haven't cut the Medicaid, then they're going to have a hard time getting it passed in the House. But the Senate can't do a bill that cuts it. So that's the. So then, is there a, a set of horror stories where, in conference committee, they kind of do the worst of all worlds that has happened in the history of American politics, but it's not what we should bet on? Is it conceivable that the House version of that bill could be better than Obamacare? No. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. It, it doesn't have it doesn't have care provision. It doesn't. It, it takes coverage away from Medicaid populations. Um, it undermines the. It changes the subsidies for low income people, um, and subsidizes high income people. But literally, a sixty um, year old person can end up paying four times as much. For their insurance next year, if that bill passes, mm -hmm. four times and as much. Yeah, <laughs> it's a disaster. Yeah, I, I got news for the Republicans: sixty-year-olds vote. Sixty-year-olds <laughs> vote. No, the the impact, which is why AARP totally, completely opposes the bill. American Hospital Association totally opposes it. AMA totally opposes it. Every form of organized care delivery. Um, is, is opposed to that bill because of those reasons, because they don't want the older people not to be able to have coverage. Yeah. So I, I don't think it's a serious, as designed, a serious um, player. Um, but but um, the, the thing that we do need to focus, though, on is um, in, in this country, we need to help our kids. And... What we, what we have right now is that the number one predictor for who's going to be in prison at age 18 mm -hmm. is the number of words in their vocabulary in kindergarten. 
Super interesting. So that leads to to your book, Three Key Areas. It does actually. Yeah, yeah. So and now because it all ties in. Look, that's going to tie into your healthcare. It's good. Let's put that. Nope, you got yeah, stuck in the, the box way. there. There you right, go. There we go. <laughs> okay, because it leads to the issues of healthcare, and uh, there's also a racial component, and it's yes. etc. So it ties our all of our conversation. That's why I saved it to the end. So. Um, so why is that? So talk about that amazing stat you just said. Why the number of words in their vocabulary is 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 the greatest indicator? Well, the the number one predictor for who's going to be in prison is based on the fact that the children who drop out of high school, the students who drop out of high school, mm -hmm. overwhelmingly go to jail. Mm -hmm. And so, sixty percent of the African American males in this country who dropped out of high school, who are in their 30s, are in jail today. That's too amazing to believe. That's Isn't literally that unbelievable. Yeah, the, the total number of African American males in jail today mm -hmm. in this country exceeds the number of African American males who were enslaved at the beginning of the Civil War. Yeah, so amazing. you go back, I mean, it's a number issue, but you, but you go back and look at the number of people in jail. But it's 60% who drop out of school. It, it's 10% of the ones who didn't drop out of school. But you can predict with 80% accuracy by age three whether or not the kids are going to drop out of school. And that's because all the brain development happens in the first three years of life. The neurons connect in the first three years of life. That's when the brain gets strong. And the kids who have someone talking to them, playing with them, reading to them, interacting with them, in the first three years build billions and billions of neuron connections. And they last for life. So that all the kids who have that exposure get their brain exercise in those years do well. And the kids who don't have that happen, the kids who are isolated, ignored, don't have anyone talking to them, by the time they get to four, can't catch up because the brain chemistry changes at four. And the brain prunes itself. It actually prunes out unused connections and cells. And so what happens is... Kindergarten, pre-kindergarten is too late. Mm -hmm. At age four, the the kids. So you can do all kinds of things to help the kids be happier. You could do things to, you know, help them be wiser, but you can't make them significantly smarter after three. Okay, hold, because uh, you've now put me in a panic because yeah. my kids are six and four. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so. Uh oh, it's too late. I should have read your book earlier. But you, <laughs> right, but you have read and talked to your kids. And number one, you have. So let's talk about what you need to do in those first okay. three years for so, you know, optimal yes. return. If let, you will. Let, let's go down. Yeah, let's go down uh, a couple paths because one is um, what what you do for kids in that time frame, and then what do you do if you've missed that opportunity, and and what do you need to do later? But. What you need to do in the first years is you need to talk to the child, you need to read to the child, interact with the child, play with the child, and you need to, Harvard Center for the Developing Child has done some magnificent work in what they call volume return. That where the, the child says something and you react to it and you have a volume return with the child. Mm -hmm. That actually builds brain cells by the billions. It's mm -hmm. incredible. The little brains light up, the kids just, they beam, they're happy, the brain just explodes when literally you get a explosions of connectivity in the brain of the children who are getting happy connections with their mother, their father, their grandmother, whatever, in the family. So you get that explosion happening. And the kids who are isolated, the brain doesn't connect, that part of the brain doesn't link up. Those billions of connections do not happen. 
and you get to age four, and, and it's too late. Those kids have tiny vocabularies. They cannot do well in school. They never learn to read, and they drop out of school. So there's a couple of different elements here. here. Um, uh, one is is the vocabulary then allows them to do better in school and et cetera. But is there also a social element to this that if you don't build those neurons that connect you to other human beings that you lack empathy and become a Republican? Well, let me go back and, and add one other thing because that, that's first three years, but there's also the first three months. Mm -hmm. And there's epigenetic science now that shows us that the brain actually structures itself differently. So in the first three months when the brain epigenetic factors are at play, if a child is hungry and is fed, and if a child is stressed and is comforted, the brain wires itself in one direction. Mm -hmm. But if the child is hungry and not fed, stressed and not comforted, the brain literally wires itself differently. Mm -hmm. And you have a different brain in 100 days. And the, the children who end up with the, the negative wiring end up with presumptive negativity as a syndrome, so they assume the world is negative. They, mm. inter, they Any interaction comes to them, they, they respond to it as though it's a negative interaction. And the kids who get the other response think the world is positive, and so they're, they're looking forward to new experiences and they're welcoming the world. And so you get two very different sets of behaviors and Dr. Beatrice Beebe at Columbia did some magnificent work, and she can videotape a mother-child interaction at 100 days and predict with 90% accuracy which kids are going to be in trouble at one year, three year, and five years. Wow. At 100 days. So, is so that, uh, but, but uh -huh. the, back to your point earlier, though, but and so what she says is don't give up on the kid at that point, intervene. So she's all about, let's assess every kid at 100 days. Identify the ones that are in problematic status and then provide some kind of adult intervention, either help with the parent or get another parent or get a grandparent or get an outside. But she believes in interventions because you can still save the kids at 100 days. Mm -hmm. 100 days isn't hopeless, but 100 days is inevitable if you don't intervene. So, uh, quick side question: Ferber method, where you make the kid have the kid cry themselves to sleep, is that deeply problematic? Given what you're saying, that's not optimal. No. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. When, when you get when the kid it depends how old the kid is. If the, if the kid uh -huh. is four, uh -huh. you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> but no, at the beginning of the process, you want the kid. The, the kid who uh, is stressed needs to be comforted at that point mm -hmm. to get the brain wiring going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. So you need to comfort the child, you need to feed the child, you need to interact with the child. And the children at, the children can tell differences in languages at like six hours old. I mean, the, the research is stunning. Yes, they can uh -huh. tell, they can, at, when they're just hours old, the brain actually reacts differently if they hear a language that wasn't the one they heard in utero. Hmm. So and in and so, so in the in the first six months to a normal parent, the kid appears to be a blob. Okay, but you, what you're saying is the exact opposite. Exact opposite. The kid is exploding. The neurons are are connecting like crazy. They're connected by the billions. So in, you in, should read to your kids in the first hundred days, even way more so oh. than than when you read to them when they you, could actually understand it. You, yes, you should be interacting with the children in, in loving supportive ways immediately in, in books as part of that. But talking is huge. Just just simply talking oh, to the child, whew. interacting. A, boy, do no. I talk. <laughs> yeah, no, well, talking. <laughs> Thank God for no, that. The, the, kids, the kids with talking parents end up much smarter. 
Mm -hmm. the, the kids' parents yes. talk to them. Yes. And <laughs> yeah, I assume you got smart kids, but uh, if you talk I, to I, you. We don't know yet. Jury's out. Yeah. But, uh, but, but the only we, person I know who talks more than me is my wife, so <laughs> we got that you're, covered. You've got it covered. But, <laughs> but that's what you need. And what's going on now is that most, we don't tell that to mothers. So mothers have a child take it home and do not know that they're supposed to talk to the child and, and don't know that that talking is magical and creates all kinds of connections. The mothers who learn that immediately change behavior and they love it because all mothers love their children. They really want their children to do well. Mm -hmm. And so you really want the children to do well. So the mothers basically change behavior when they get the coaching. But if they don't get the coaching, they can't change behavior because they don't have the knowledge. And we have, it's been extremely disrespectful. We have not taught that to, to low-income parents because we've been saying that challenging lives, we don't want to put that burden on. And I think that is stunningly disrespectful and dysfunctional. And we need to tell every single parent understand that because when you understand it, you can make a difference. And dads are really, really important. Right now, most fathers feel that they had no value at all. Mm -hmm. And we now know from multiple studies the dads, the interaction, there's a trusting interaction with a father figure that's actually really good for the child's emotional development, really good for emotional stability mm -hmm. in the child, and is good for the intellectual growth as well. And so the fathers who just talk to the kid, they don't even have to read to the kid. The fathers mm -hmm. who talk to the kid in interactive, loving, supportive ways, the kids are brighter, happier, healthier kids. Okay, so last couple of things here. So if, if you've got a kid that's under the age of three, uh, especially in the first 100 days, so talk to them, interact with them, make sure they're comforted. Yeah. Anything else? Or is that that's well, the feed, top three? You, you feed them. You want to you yeah. make sure they're well fed. I mean, right. you know, yeah. But no, it, it's literally talk, read, sing. And then when you get to a little older, 18 months to you, start basic counting. Uh -huh. Counting is really good. Um, huh. How many apples is this? Just basic, not mm -hmm. not advanced math, but mm -hmm. you know, arithmetic is really, really good. And kids' brains get much stronger if you do little, um, just simple. I wish I read your book earlier. Apples. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So um, at what age are they hopeless? <laughs> seriously, what? seriously. Yeah. I know nothing's hopeless. I know that. But, but at what point have their brains really basically developed and we're done with it? And then you really got to manage well, what you got. It's, it's harder. You can still make improvements after age four. Mm -hmm. It's just much harder. Mm-hmm. You can, if you work with a four-year-old child who is way behind, you can still, um, because there's still connectivity happening, you can make a difference in that child. And so you can take them up to a, a better level of performance than they would have if they didn't have the interaction. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot to be said for emotional stability, for caring, caring interactions with children, even if they're slow intellectually. It's wonderful to have that caring, positive interaction. So it helps give the kid a better life, even if they're not going to be a PhD. Mm -hmm. and, and so you, you end up with a, so it, there's never a point where we should give up on the kids, ever, never. Mm -hmm. and, and we can help kids. But on, on something like kindergarten, pre-kindergarten, we want great kindergartens, a great pre-kindergarten, but that's only going to help the kids who really got the right start in the first years. Yep. So, you, George, you've done your job because you've sufficiently panicked me about this issue, um, and and so there's a couple of issues where I think like like let the lead in the air in the 1970s, and now we have the lead in the water. Mm -hmm. We know how toxic lead is. You got to get it out. That's an absolute priority. Yep. No question about it. Right. Yep. 
But now this has now jumped up to the near to the top of my list. Absolutely. If we know all the developments happening in the first three years in the brain, for God's sake, everybody should focus on the first three years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So are yes. there a lot of groups yes. other than your group? No. No. Not enough. No. So is that what the Inter Institute for Intergroup Understanding is doing? Well, or that's is that working on issues of of the, the, ethnic the conflict ethnic, and whatever. Yeah. But but a big part of that is we're we're not going to have. Peaceful societies with African American communities. If we are putting everyone in jail, mm -hmm. and then yeah. we, we got to go upstream in that process, and we got to change our trajectory to jail. Mm -hmm. And we need to do understanding. And one of my books is Art of Peace, uh -huh. and it's a balanced art of war. So art of war is win lose. Art of peace is win win. Art of war is deceit deception. Art of peace is trust, honesty, candor, transparency. And so what I do is I talk about in that book. How do we get intergroup understanding going, and, and how do we have interactions with people that make sense and, and that are, create trust and create a sense of us? Because we instinctively divide the world into us and them. Yep. And if somebody is an us, we're protective, supportive, forgiving. If somebody's a them, we're territorial, antagonistic, distrustful. We do horrible things to them. We enslave them. We firebomb them. We do evil things to them, and we feel no guilt, no conscience. That's our hardwiring. Damn, George, so, you got this thing figured out. You're absolutely right. What I explained on the show recently was that it's not that conservatives are less empathetic. I kid around about that, right? And it's that their definition of us is smaller. Yes, it's a different definition of us. Yes. And so within that definition, ethical, caring, kind, gentle, Yes, all of great the right in their stuff. family, great inside the yep. church, etc. Yep. When you go outside the clan. You're, then you are a non-person, and anything can be done to those people. And not only can anything be done to the people, but you feel right damaging them. Right, the you're righteous in that cause. You are yes. righteous in that cause. You feel good damaging them, which is why we have to extend and broaden the sense of us. We have to do that. All right, uh, George Halverson, I can now see why you're in the Scandinavian Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody, look, yeah. if you got kids or you're gonna have kids, even if you don't, but especially if you're going to three key years. Uh, uh, look, I don't do this in every interview, okay? You, I, I wish I read this earlier. Uh, but but thank you for coming to share this information. Super appreciated, both on healthcare, race, and, and developmental issues. Thank you so much, George. Thank you. If you like the interview that you just watched, I got great news for you. If you become a Young Turks member, you can watch them live as they happen. Only the members get that. You also get Young Turks live. You also get Aggressive Progressive live and Old School live. Everything is available for the members and commercial free. tytnetwork.com slash join.